I asked Tim Crane, Professor of Philosophy at University College London, about the implications of Hilary Putnam's famous Twin Earth thought experiment. We started by talking about its implications for language and moved on to talk about its implications for thought. In between, along with Barry Smith, we discussed the legitimacy of using thought experiments in philosophy. Tim Crane began, though, by outlining the view that Putnam was criticising with his Twin Earth example. Putnam identified something he called the traditional picture of meaning, which involves two very important assumptions. The first assumption is that knowing the meaning of a word was a matter of being in a psychological state, a state of mind. So when you know the meaning of the word, that is a matter of having certain beliefs about how things are. The second assumption was that the meaning of a word determines its reference. What that means is that what the word means determines what it is about in the world. There has to be some connection between the meaning of the word cat and the fact that it refers to cats, that it's real cats in the world that the word refers to. Putnam expressed this by saying that the meaning of a word determines its extension or its reference. The words extension and reference can mean the same thing for the time being. Now, he took these two views, that meaning is a matter of the psychological state that you're in and that meaning determines reference to be part of the traditional picture of meaning. And I think he's certainly right about that. Many of the great philosophers of language of the 20th century held these views. Now, Putnam wanted to argue that these views were actually inconsistent when we take into account certain obvious possibilities. And he provided a very powerful argument against the view that meaning, or knowing the meaning, was a matter of being in a certain psychological state. Putnam wanted to argue that two people could be psychologically exactly the same. That is, they could be in the same mental states, even though they meant different things by their words. The way he argued this was by using a thought experiment, an imaginary situation, which brings out the consequences of some of the things that we think. His thought experiment was this. Suppose there is, in this universe, a planet which is identical in every respect to this planet, to Earth. We can call this planet Twin Earth. It's identical in every respect except one. The thing that they call water on Twin Earth is not the same substance as the thing we call water on Earth. It's got some different chemical constitution. So when someone on Twin Earth says, water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink, they're referring to something different than what someone on Earth is referring to when they say those words. Now Putnam says, let's suppose, within the scope of this, this fantasy, this thought experiment, that each of us has a duplicate on Twin Earth, someone who is exactly the same in every respect as us. Now, call these people the twins of people on Earth. So each of us has a twin. Now, our twins are, by hypothesis, psychologically identical. They're in all the same psychological states. But when my twin uses the word water, he's referring to something different from the thing I'm referring to when I say water. Well, you might say, so what? Big deal. But once you add the assumption that meaning determines reference then you can see that the meanings of our words must be different too, according to Putnam. 
It's very important to realize that determines here means the following thing. It means that if meaning determines reference, then if two words differ in their reference, they differ in their meaning, but not vice versa. So if the meaning of cat determines the reference, namely the property of being a cat, if the word were to have a different reference, it would have a different meaning. So apply that to the twin earth case. My utterance of water refers to something different from my twins. Therefore, by that principle, meaning determines reference, our words mean something different. And that's the situation Putnam wanted to generate, which is this, that my twin and I are psychologically identical. We have all the same mental states, but our words mean something different. Okay, so that's the argument. But can I ask about the methodology of that argument? In fact, can I ask both of you, Barry too, about the methodology of thought experiments? Because Grice, too, often uses very fanciful scenarios and then asks us to accept certain conclusions based on them. And the twin Earth scenario is the most fanciful of all. A physicist or a geographer would not be impressed by somebody who came along and said, well, your theory's wrong because I can imagine a situation where it doesn't hold. So why is it okay to refute a philosophical theory using a thought experiment? Well, I'd like to take issue with an assumption that you made there, which is that thought experiments aren't used in science. Um, I don't think that's quite right. If we think of uh, Galileo's thought experiment about the motion of bodies, which he used to refute Aristotle's theory of motion. Galileo said that, according to Aristotle, heavier bodies fall faster than lighter bodies. Aristotle also held that if a slower-moving body were attached to a faster-moving body, it would slow it down. If you put these two ideas together and you simply imagine an object that weighs two pounds added to an object that weighs three pounds, then Aristotle's theory implies that the object that weighs two pounds would slow down the other object. However, an object that weighs two pounds added to an object that weighs three pounds is an object that weighs five pounds, so it's a heavier object, so it should move faster. So we've contradicted ourselves, and we've done that without leaving our armchair. And we've shown that Aristotle's theory implies a contradiction. And we did that by a thought experiment. So I don't think it's quite fair to say that thought experiments are just used within philosophy. Barry, do you think they're legitimate? Another common objection to thought experiments is that they deal with things which are too fanciful. So in the case that Tim's been describing, we talk about a twin earth, just like this one, with creatures who are all duplicates and replicas of us. And we try to use this experiment to draw the consequence that two people who are alike in all their internal psychological states and using the same word are in fact referring to different things. Now, the reason we use such seemingly outlandish examples is to show that often the notions we're using when we look at them in the domestic, everyday case, we can't really see all their features. And if we take them and test them in the most extreme environments, we test them to destruction, as it were, we can find out that notions we thought were the same come apart when we take them to those extremes. And by looking at how ordinary notions behave in extraordinary circumstances, we find out more about what they're really like. People sometimes make a distinction between externalism about words and externalism about psychological states or mental content. Can you explain 
what that difference amounts to, and then say something about how they relate to one another. Putnam's argument can be applied not just to the case of meanings of words, but, as people soon discovered, you could apply the argument to thoughts as well. So, thinking ain't in the head. That would be the conclusion, which sounds very paradoxical, but the argument, again, would go in the same kind of way, that my twin and I could be both thinking about water. One of us is thinking about the real water on Earth, the other one is thinking about this other water on twin Earth, twin water. If our thoughts are supposed to determine reference, then we can't be thinking the same thoughts, that is to say, thoughts with the same content. So we're thinking different thoughts, even though, as a hypothesis of the thought experiment, we are actually physically identical. So this has the conclusion that, as you say, thoughts aren't in the head, or in other words, that what you're thinking, the content of your thought, is not determined purely by internal properties of you. So this thesis about thought is a very radical thesis. It says that what the nature of someone's thought is cannot be fixed simply by considering that person just on their own. But thought, rather, stretches out into the environment. Could I just ask you to mention some of the objections to mental externalism? Because not everybody's won over by the argument that you just ran through. Yes, there are two main kinds of objection. One appeals to the idea of um, the subject's point of view on the world. And this style of objection says, from the point of view of me on Earth and my twin on twin Earth, things seem exactly the same. Not only does the world seem exactly the same, but my thoughts seem exactly the same. Yet Putnam's argument shows that we have different thoughts. Now, how do we square this with the idea that our thoughts seem exactly the same? Well, the worry here is that it's very plausible to think that our knowledge of our thoughts is in some way immediate or privileged. It's sometimes said that we have privileged access to what we're thinking. I know what I'm thinking in a way which has a kind of authority which you don't have over what I'm thinking. You can't tell what I'm thinking in the same way that I can tell what I'm thinking. Putnam's argument seems to threaten this because it seems to say that I couldn't tell just by reflection on my situation now whether I'm on Earth or Twin Earth, and therefore I couldn't tell whether I'm thinking about water or Twin Water. So Putnam's theory threatens the authority that we have over our own thoughts, or the knowledge of our own thoughts. That's one kind of objection, and people say that because this authoritative knowledge is a very well-established fact, that we should therefore be sceptical about Putnam's argument. The other kind of objection comes from the role that psychological states play in causing and explaining what we do. It's a fundamental aspect of our common-sense picture of ourselves that what we do depends on what we think and what we want. So we're caused to do the things that we do because we want certain things and we believe that we can get them by doing other things. Consider the twin earth case. If my twin wants to do something, to drink a glass of water, then he will behave in exactly the same way that I do if I want to drink a glass of water, assuming that we have all the same other states. There seems to be no difference in the behaviour that's produced when I aim to drink a glass of water and then when my twin aims to drink a glass of water. We're both trying to do the same thing. 
So why do we need to introduce a difference in thought when trying to understand that difference in behaviour? Yet Putnam's argument does introduce a difference in thought. It says that our thoughts are completely different. One of our thoughts is about water, the other thought is about twin water. So the point is something like this. Thought that depends on the environment isn't the kind of thought that explains behaviour. And we should in fact stick, when we're talking about mental content, just stick to the latter kind of thought. Yes, I think so. The idea would be that the difference between Earth and twin Earth is invisible to the subject by hypothesis. So it's not something that can show up in the thoughts that they have which explain why they do what they do. Up to this point, we've been focusing on meaning and language, but I'd like to turn now to mental representation, and in particular, attempts to understand it scientifically, part of the project of naturalising the mind, as it's sometimes called. Rightly or wrongly, what gave impetus to these attempts was the rise of the computational theory of mind. So, Tim, I wonder if you could begin by spelling out the central tenets of this theory. The theory is is a theory about those states of mind which represent the world, so states of mind like belief and thought and uh, desire and judgment and so on. The theory says that when someone is in one of these mental states, there are certain symbols in their head which represent things in the world. These symbols are like the symbols of a language, and it's often said that they have uh, semantic properties, that is to say they represent things, And they have syntactic properties, which are properties like the property of being a word, for example. The idea is that you have a mental representation, which means dog, in your head, whenever you represent dogs. And it's the same symbol whenever it occurs. It's this combination of semantic and syntactic properties which the representations have, which lead its main proponent, Jerry Fodor, to call the the theory the language of thought. Uh, So the theory is that we think in an inner language, which is these mental representations or symbols in our head. Why would anybody hold such a strange view? I think there are three main reasons. The first is to show how thinking can be embodied in the material world. Thinking is not an ethereal process, but it's something that must be actually realised in the physical matter of our brains. Fodor has used the analogy with the way a computer program is embodied in the hardware of the computer. The computer program isn't an ethereal thing, and it involves symbols which are physically embodied in the actual computer. So that's the first reason. The second reason is that mental processes seem to have a certain character. Thinking has a certain kind of order, which Fodor thinks is best explained by treating symbols as having this structure. For example, if you infer a a conclusion from a piece of reasoning, your conclusion, like, for example, that you want to go to the pub and have a beer, you might infer that conclusion on the basis of certain arguments. These arguments actually cause you to go and do something. That is to say, go to the pub and have the beer. So somehow you're being caused to do something by the fact that you are reasoning in a certain way. So your reasoning must have a physical embodiment. This mental process must have a physical embodiment which reflects the structure of the reasoning itself. That's the second reason. The third reason is more specific, which is that 
thought seems to have this systematic character. If you can think that John loves Mary, then you're capable of thinking that Mary loves John. Fodor has argued that the best explanation for that systematic character is that thought itself has a linguistic structure, that there are separate elements, separate symbols or mental representations for Mary, loves and John, and you can rearrange them in this way, just as you can in a language. Do those who posit this language of thought ever say, in physical or scientific terms, what it is for a symbol of this language to represent or to have semantic properties, as you put it, or do they just take the notion of representation as somehow given? Well, it's an interesting question because, on the one hand, what the theory of mind was trying to do was trying to explain how thought can be embodied in a physical system. And it did this by saying that there are representations in your head. But as you say, it doesn't explain what makes something a representation. It just assumes that there are these representations and it tells you how they interact with each other. You might think this is a problem if you were a naturalist and you thought that all the facts about the world ought to be statable in a physical vocabulary, a vocabulary that doesn't use notions like meaning and representation. People who think that will want to add something else to a representational theory of mind. The dominant approach to that question is to say that what makes a symbol represent the things that it does is its causal connection to the environment. So simplifying a lot, the basic idea is that your mental symbol for a cat represents cats because it was caused by an interaction with a cat. But you seem to be suggesting that there's a kind of alternative position, which is just the computational theory of mind without the attempt to naturalise the notion of representation. Well, I'm not sure that could be a comfortable position. And the, my reason is just that one of the attractions of the computational theory of mind was its materialism. This was the first of the three attractions that you listed earlier on. Surely anyone who's attracted to the theory, the computational theory of mind, for that reason would feel obliged to give a naturalistic definition of the notion of representation as well? Not necessarily. I think these are two separate issues. One is whether there are representations in your head, whether there is a language of thought. The other is whether you can give a naturalistic or physicalist reduction of the concept of representation, whether you can explain what it is for something to represent something in non mental or non-representational terms. And it seems to me that you could be a materialist or a physicalist or a naturalist if these things all these words roughly mean the same thing and nonetheless believe that within the theory of mind the concept of representation is a primitive concept. It's one of the basic concepts of the theory. What we're trying to do is to explain how the mechanisms of the mind work, and as long as we've got something which is consistent with what we find in the other sciences, then we shouldn't worry that we've introduced new concepts which can't be explained in physical terms. The biological concept of fitness, for example, cannot be explained in physical terms. Nonetheless, that doesn't make biology inconsistent with physics. All that's really needed for a naturalist picture of the world is that everything should be determined by the fundamental physical facts. I'm not saying this picture of the world is true, but this is all a naturalist needs to say. I don't think they need to say, in addition, that 
all concepts, including the concept of representation, can be defined in physical terms. Tim Crane, Barry Smith, thank you very much indeed. From the Open University. For more information, go to www.open.ac.uk forward slash use.